I'm Jack Zemlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2018 Strip-Till Farmer Podcast Series. Today's program, Part 2 of 10 Lessons Learned for Developing a Successful Strip-Till System, is being brought to you by Topcon Agriculture. If this is your first time tuning in, you can subscribe to this series and get updates on future episodes currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if you prefer another app for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll look to get it added. Thanks again to TopCon Agriculture for its support of this podcast series. Agronomy matters and TopCon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. And I'd like to invite you to attend the 5th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. The 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to strip-till. Look for speaker announcements and conference updates at striptillconference.com. Well, starting out in strip-till requires planning, patience, and a bit of a sense of adventure. Farmers who have made the transition understand the commitment of time and effort that go into developing a productive, profitable system. But any strip-tiller will attest that growing pains and failure will be part of the evolutionary process. Custom strip-tilling more than 20,000 acres on 20 to 25 different soil types during the last five years, Elk Point, South Dakota farmer Joey Hansen has seen the good, bad, and ugly of equipment setups, berm building, and fertilization strategies. In his experience, he's seen primarily two types of strip-tillers, those who want strip-till to succeed and make it work, and those who don't really want to succeed with strip-till, but try it so they can say the tillage system they've been using was best. In today's Strip-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Topcon Agriculture, Joy continues sharing 10 takeaways from his experience strip-tilling, including strip-till timing equipment setups and soil building opportunities. So equipment options, this is kind of the big one. We could probably talk on this forever. I'm not here necessarily to talk the difference between a mole knife or a shank or a coulter. They all have their place. For me, coming from heavy conventional tillage where people are used to running rippers and discs and chisels and seeing their grounds black, I knew that running a coulter system, only running probably three, four inches deep, wasn't necessarily gonna be a fit. So I knew I wanted a mole knife or some type of a shank machine. I can tell you that if you're gonna go with a shank machine or a mole knife and the manufacturer tells you need, let's say 18 horsepower per row, probably add at least 10% to that. You know, and that's what I learned. I got into the hills in Nebraska, we'll say, and I have plenty of horsepower in the flats. I ran out of horsepower. I actually had to shallow up. I had to downshift. I had to go a lot slower. The way I have my machine, I like to run a certain speed with it. And you can see that machine change drastically when you slow down or you speed up. Dry fertilizer or liquid, I can't deal with liquid, so I deal with dry. They both have their fit, they're both good. I just run dry. Fall and spring, of course, as you can tell, I definitely do a lot more in the fall than I do the spring. Knife shank or coulter, they definitely all have their fit. I've run you know, a lot of the knife and some of the coulters, I'll show you some of the differences. And then working depth and speed. You know, this is a big one, this is a big topic. Some people run deep, 
You know, you saw those knives from the first guy. They're very deep. You can get really deep with those knives. I run more of a standard knife. Actually, mine's just the opposite. I like a wide foot. I do make sure I dig a lot. I have a shovel with me all the time, and I dig and make sure I'm not creating any air pockets. But I like that wide foot, and I like to boil a lot of dirt, and then I like to burn it back up. Soil types and conditions, these change so drastically for me. I'm not going to tell you that I get out and change my machine every time. I just make sure that I'm doing as good of a job in the conditions that I'm in as I possibly can. There's been a lot of times where I've known that I've had to wait a few more days to come back to this area because of the soil types. And so I'll move somewhere else, even though it's not ideal. But giving those fields a few more days, I'll share an example with you. 2013, my disaster year, there was a grower that wanted me to do 280s right across the dirt road from each other. Heavy soils, very, very heavy black gumbo soils. So I loaded all 160 acres on my cart. I thought, this is no big deal. This will take me a day. It took me three days. I unplugged every pass, usually a minimum of four to six rows. I probably took at least three to five years off my life in those three days. <laughs> I, I've never hated strip till as much as I did then. And it was my own fault. I was not set up. I was not configured correctly to do heavy, mucky gumbos when it was that wet. So I ended up giving the grower a, a big break because I told him, I flat out told him, I said, I know you're going to hear me talk to everybody and tell them don't field cultivate this. You better field cultivate this field next spring. I mean, I just plugged all the time. I couldn't get it to flow through. And I spent more time on my hands and knees trying to tweak and adjust the strip till machine, but it didn't matter what I did. The conditions were not right. But I didn't have a choice, I had to get the fertilizer off. He doubled his acres the next year. I thought I'd lose him forever. But the winter, things kind of settled out and they weren't near that bad. Since then, because of that one situation, I've drastically changed my machine. And I think I usually do probably five or 600 acres for him still every single fall, and he loves it. So it's a learning curve, it's possible. You just have to make sure you have to know what to change. So different machine options, uh, accessibility for parts and the support and understanding. When I first bought mine, the very first field that I strip tilled was my own. And I remember my wife was riding with me and we made a couple rounds and she's like, what do you think? I said, I got no idea. I've never done this before. <laughs> I don't know. What do you, she goes, well, it looks pretty good to me. I said, yeah, it looks pretty good to me too. So I called the rep and he came out and no, I didn't really look that good. So we spent quite a bit of time tweaking and adjusting. So that's a big thing right there is just having the support to be able to say, well, you know, here's how you should probably adjust that. You know, we've always run ours on the back hole. So there's a lot of adjustments in some of these machines and understanding where and when and how to adjust them is kind of a, a big part of it. And then try to how to remove some of these issues so you don't have to deal with, you know, taking three to five years off your life like I have. And I'm gonna tell you right now, there's a reason I started with residue managers as my equipment as I break it down. I wholeheartedly believe this is one of the most important parts of a strip till machine, which is why you'll see our residue managers on this machine move to the front. I don't want to cut residue and then move it. I want to move it and then cut the soil. So that's the thought process behind it. I used to run Sunco Shark Tooth, great trash whippers. Man, at six and a half mile an hour, those things were just flying. And I would throw residue over the next row very easily, all the time. My consistency with my berms were frustrating in high residue situations where the grower wasn't managing the residue out of the backside of their combine. But you know, I had to deal with that. I mean, you saw how many different planter types, you could about imagine how many different combines and setups I go behind. So I needed to address a problem that became my problem because of, you know, something maybe with the combine. 
Sunco came out with, I think those are 18 or 19 inches. They're a really big trash whipper. So you can about imagine how much we've slowed that down. So as we slowed that down, we minimized how far we threw that residue over and actually allowed me to speed my strip-till machine up, which actually made that strip-till machine work a little bit better. So residue managers are key to the success of any strip-till operation, and I want to see very little mixed in with that soil. I don't mind if it's, if it's sitting on top even or off to the sides, but I don't want it mixed in. Not only that, I started doing a lot more corn on corn, and I was really having a hard time moving the corn on corn. I don't believe personally in vertical tilling. I don't believe doing anything in corn on corn strip till except strip tilling it. Otherwise, go back to conventional till. Strip till, I want it to be one pass, and I want you to plan into it. That is strip till right there. So those have drastically helped. I can move a lot of residue and almost never, if I plug in corn on corn, it's usually not my residue managers, it's something on the back end. So like I said, it starts with the combine. It's extremely crucial no matter your rotation. You know, that's the other thing. It doesn't appear that we're gonna start getting away from high residue situations, whether it's soybean stubble or corn. So we just as well figure out to find a way to manage it. And you wanna do that. You wanna maintain a high level and just move enough. Don't, don't move more than you have to. Okay, so he talked about wavy and flat and fluted. These coulters on the left were what took so much of my life away from me in 2013. They're very wavy. They love to fill up with dirt. And then there's an arm on the side. I think you can see on the right one. They'd fill in between that arm and they'd stop and they'd plug and they'd push. 90 some percent of my failures have come from that coulter right there. And he talked about running as deep as the knife. I don't quite run it that high. I don't run it to the hub, but I'll run it usually four or five inches. That fall, I was running it like an inch and almost debated on even taking it off because it was plugging. So I learned in a really fast hurry, that's not a good fit for wet falls. I love the fluted. I love this coulter right there. And those are kind of wore out. The ones I run usually have a flat edge right off the bat to kind of cut. You want some of that lifting action from the fluted. So. I'm not against these by any means whatsoever. If you have a dry fall, I think they'll work great. Where I did find really good success with those was on my double coulter system. I was running a series of coulters and I wanted a little bit more aggressive action in front. So those work really good for that. And if you had a dry fall, they would work for that also. So that's just some of the differences. I tried a smooth coulter. I bought some smooth coulters a couple years ago when it was kind of wet one fall. And I actually didn't find any difference from the fluted. I have very seldomly ever plugged a fluted coulter. So that is my go-to coulter of choice is that fluted. And like I said, here's just some of the differences between the two and what I've found and, and the different soil types. That's the other part. I mean, you can run those wavy coulters. If I did a lot of lighter textured soil, you could probably run those wavy coulters all the time and never have an issue. But a high percentage of my soils are heavy clay gumbo and they're wet all the time. I run a mole knife and in the fall time I run a mini mole knife in the springtime. I do run these springs. I try to keep my ceiling arms pushed down as much as I can. I've changed settings on these. I've put them on top. I've moved them in. I've moved them out. I've done anything and everything you could possibly do. Talk about one thing where it could be an adjustment is as you can tell each one of these requires you to take a couple three quarter inch wrenches. That takes a long time even for a 12 row. So there's no perfect necessarily system, but once you get these kind of fine-tuned in, and he's not kidding, I've got some that are pitched wide, some that are pitched narrow. Each row is going to act a little bit differently. This was the system that I had set up. These coulters were actually intended for spring freshening in corn on corn. 
I tried them once, I did two rounds and I quit. I'm not a fan of freshening up. Where I found success with them was running them in the springtime that, in 2015. So they're not a bad system, they just have some drawbacks. What I didn't like was, I didn't like some of the clod sizes, right? So I went out that spring, I tried them. This wasn't gonna work great, so I went back into the shop and I thought of my planner. I've been running those drag chains forever and I thought, this is a great idea. So I found some steel, I found some old heavy log chains and I made my own drag chains. It took this Coulter system from a so-so system to an absolutely excellent system. I had some of the best compliments ever from growers that planted onto this double Coulter knowing it was shallow, you know, three or four inches, and a lot of it was corn on corn that spring. So there's a fit for it, but I still like the idea of getting that, the nutrients down a little bit deeper. So when I first started with this, I made four prototypes, having no idea what I was doing most of the time whatsoever. Some were light, some were heavy, some were tight, some were loose. That might have been just a picture of the tight ones. When you set it down, these arms raise up. When they raise up, they get closer together and your chain automatically forms that U. And it just like the planner setups that you see all over there, it drags behind there. Also, when I ran this setup, I was usually about eight and a half mile an hour. This one is drastically different than the knife. You have to run faster. But I tried anywhere from four to 11 and eight and a half was what worked the best. So this is still a decent option, but I like banding those nutrients a little deeper. So this was in the fall. You can see I, I run high berms. I like high berms. He showed you that picture of the inverted berms. One of the scariest things ever is, is getting a phone call saying all my strips are inverted. Well, there's no way to fix that. I guess probably go field cultivate at that point to try to level it off, honestly. So I run really high berms. This was that coulter. This was 225 or 30 bushel corn in the fall of 14. I strip tilled right into it. No vertical tillage, no nothing. And he went corn on corn on that and raised phenomenal corn again that fall. So they both worked really well. You can see in this one, talk about residue management. So this guy combine at an angle. It looks like he spread his chaff about 10 foot wide, which he did, and he didn't chop it up very well. So I've got long trash right here coming in on the sides. As you work your way down into this lighter texture soil, my strips are black again. I deal with that all the time, right? So you, you have to try to work around that, but residue management is absolutely key to the success of strip till. We'll get back to Joey's discussion shortly, but I wanted to once again thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for making this podcast possible. Agronomy matters, and Topcon Agriculture application solutions make it work. From planning to precision machine control, NORAX boom height control, monitoring and mapping, to data management, you have the total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. Find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use. Visit them at topconpositioning.com slash growing solutions. Well, coming from heavy conventional tillage where people are used to running rippers and discs and chisels and seeing their grounds black, Joey said he knew that running a coulter system three to four inches deep wasn't necessarily going to be a fit for his system. At the 2017 National Strip Tillage Conference in Omaha, he mentioned that he tried running a coulter setup intended for spring freshening in corn on corn. Where he found success with them was running in spring 2015, but what he didn't like was some of the clod sizes created by the system. 
He'd been running drag chains on his planter and found some steel and some old heavy log chains and made his own drag chains for the strip-till rig and had some of the best compliments ever from farmers that he planted into that double coulter strip, knowing it was only three to four inches deep. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Joey Hansen on his experience using rolling baskets on his strip-till unit. Rolling baskets, this is one that's gonna be highly debatable. I strip-tilled 13, 14, and 15, no baskets whatsoever, don't need baskets. All my competition, they all run the same strip-till machine and they all have chain baskets and they make this beautiful looking strip. But in the springtime, it didn't seem to matter, right? I wasn't losing any business because there's my strips were worse than their strips. But in spring of 16, when I ran a mini mole knife, I needed a basket. The fall before, I tried Blue Jet's basket, not to speak bad of anything, but I hated it. I hated their basket. For one row, I did two fields, I took it off, and if anybody's ever looking for one row of Blue Jet rolling basket, I've got it. But I knew there had to be a better system, so I went back to the drawing board and I looked at the options out there from different companies. Honestly, it is a Yetter rolling basket. I liked it. I liked that concave design. So what I did was I bought just this attachment, and I went back into the shop because we love to manufacture stuff and I made all this. I came right off the back of my max pack. I said, hey, I got these springs already. So I went in and I bought a bunch of springs and I made this whole design in the spring of 16. I think I started strip tilling on April 8th. We started manufacturing this about April 1st up in the shop. And luckily I had a couple neighbors that came and helped me and went down to Nebraska. The wife went over and picked up the baskets, got them all mounted on about 11 o'clock that night, and the very next day we started strip tilling. Had no idea how it was gonna work. I can tell you that I have yet to raise them up. I put them so you can pull a pin and flip them up. I've never flipped them up, and I've done a lot of acres since then. I run them in the fall now, too. I do run them in the fall. I run them a little differently. So this is something that can be debated. I'm not saying that they're a requirement in the fall, I am saying that I love my consistency of my strip in the fall more now. It firms it up. One of the reasons I like it so much is because of this. The basket that they made was a jagged flat bar and it just beat the stuff out of the strips and I didn't like that at all. So I've become a huge fan. I thought about patenting these but I realized nobody else would probably want to buy them so we didn't waste any time. But they work really good. They just kind of make the strip tail machine a little bit more cumbersome. One thing I never even anticipated was the amount of weight that it put back there. I now have to run hitch savers on my hitch. And so that's one thing I never anticipated when I was building these and, and mounting these on. And, and, but they work really, really good. And I, I do like to use them. So soybeans, I have probably seen more increase in soybean acres being strip tilled just in the last year alone. And I am more excited about strip-till soybeans than I am corn. I, I really, really am. Listen to Ray Ward, you see those pictures of corn usage per bushel versus soybeans? There's not a comparison. Soybeans use way more nutrient on a per bushel basis. I've done my own strip-till soybeans since the year I started. I said, I'm gonna make this work. And we do, it works phenomenal. And I've continued to raise my yields in soybeans at a fast pace. Skeptics, every single year I deal with this, you always will. It's very simple. If you want strip-till to succeed, it will. There's three types of people, I said. There's the people that want strip-till to succeed and to find a way to do it. There's the people that don't really want strip-till to succeed, but they want to try it just so they can say that the way they've been doing it was right. And then there's the people that have no interest whatsoever in learning a different way than what they're doing it. 
make sure that you find a way to make it succeed. Success comes from trial and error. Let me tell you what, I've done a lot of trial. And I'm getting to the point where I can hopefully stay away from some of the error. And I'm pretty sure farmers defined the term insanity because that's exactly what conventional tillage is. It's just doing the same destructive over and over every single year and expecting different results. How much fertilizer can I cut? This has probably been one of the biggest topics and conversations and there's all these different things. At the end of the day, here's what I tell people, it takes X amount of units of nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium to raise a bushel of corn. I don't care if you no-till, if you conventional till, broadcast strip till. I actually have started to get guys to go the opposite direction. We've increased our fertilizer because the utilization is so much higher and the efficiency is so much higher that our return can be a lot higher. So I've gone away from cutting fertilizer by any means whatsoever. I don't promote it, I don't discuss it. And typically I tell people if you want to cut fertilizer, you probably don't want to strip till because your mindset's a little different than what the practice is all about. So like I said, talk about being efficient, talk about increasing your profits and focusing on saving your way to prosperity is just not something that I, that I really like to talk about a whole lot. So. Weeds, that was a big one I wasn't ready for. I remember that very first year in fields that we strip-tilled for. We had mare's tail, we had kochia. You don't see mare's tail and kochia in conventional tillage, right? They're in Nebraska and Iowa, the no-till guys. So we had to drastically change our herbicide programs. I mean, we never even talked about burner type of products in our pre-program. Now, we don't do a single acre of strip-till that doesn't have some type of a burn-down program incorporated in it. So that was something I wasn't ready for and I didn't anticipate. But by far, the benefits of it outweigh some of the negatives. We've also seen a decline in some weed pressure because we've gone away from full tillage also. So there is some positives to it. So I looked up perfection. I say it's a perfect marriage and it's improving something until it's flawless. And we're not there yet, but I'm pretty sure if conventional till and no-till had a child, it'd be strip-till, and I think it's, without a doubt, on its way to flawless. I wholeheartedly believe you talk about being stewards, and strip-till isn't perfect, but neither is conventional till, and actually neither is no-till. I think we need to do a little better way of getting those nutrients down into the soil rather than just broadcasting them on the top. I think we need to do a little better way of, of working every square inch of that soil also. So... We're starting to see some benefits. I wholeheartedly believe it takes probably four to five years of doing strip-till before you start to see some true benefits from it. Essentially, that's what we're shooting for. That's what we're striving for is perfection. Well, thank you, Joey, for sharing your early lessons learned developing a strip-till system. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies Daily eBlast. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Striptill F-A-R-M-R and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. And I'd like to once again invite you to join us at the 5th Annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up July 26th and 27th in Iowa City, Iowa. The 2018 event will feature a mix of general sessions, classrooms, and roundtable discussions on topics and trends specific to strip till. 
Look for speaker announcements and conference updates at striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on July 20th for the next episode in our 2018 podcast series. For Joey Hansen, Topcon Agriculture, and our entire staff here at Strip Till Farmer, I'm Jack Zemlicka. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.